Part three, chapter twelve of The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part three, chapter twelve. At nine o'clock on the night following her first venture in the world of gambling, Clodagh was again standing by the roulette table in Lady Frances Hope's salon. She had been playing for two hours, with luck persistently against her, but no one who had chanced to glance at her eager, excited face would have imagined even for a moment that the collection of coins in her gold purse was dwindling and not increasing. Deerhurst had been correct in his deductions. She played for the play's sake. The losing game, the hazardous game, was the one which appealed to and absorbed her. The savour of risk stimulated her. The faint sense of danger lifted her to an enchanted realm. And on this night she made an unconsciously picturesque figure, and she stood fascinated by the chances of the play. Her face flushed, her eyes intensely bright, her fingers restlessly eager to make their stakes. Round about her was gathered a little group of interested and admiring men, Deerhurst, Luard, Selico, and a couple of young Americans who had come to Venice with introductions to Lady Frances Hope. But on none of them did she bestow more than a preoccupied attention. She permitted them to stand beside her, she laughed softly at their compliments and their jests, but her eyes and her thoughts were unmistakably for the painted board over which Bonnard was presiding. Another half-dozen rounds of the game were played, then suddenly she turned away from the table with a quick laugh. "'The end!' she said to Serico, who was standing nearest to her, and with a quick gesture she held up the gold-netted purse, now limp and empty. With an eager movement he stepped forward. "'Let me be useful,' he whispered quickly. "'Or me, I represent your husband, you know,' Barnard leant across the roulette table. "'Oh, come, Barney, I spoke first. But Clodagh looked smilingly from one to the other, and shook her head. "'No, no,' she said hastily, "'I, I, I never borrow money.' Serico looked obviously disappointed. "'Nonsense, Mrs. Milbank,' he began. But Deerhurst intervened. "'If Mrs. Milbank does not wish to, Valentine,' he murmured soothingly, "'Mrs. Milbank, let me take you out of temptation.' He bowed to Clodagh, and courteously made a passage for her through the crowd that surrounded them. If any cynical remembrance of her first vehement repudiation of the suggestion that she should gamble rose now to confute her newer denial, no shadow of it was visible in his face. As they freed themselves from the group of players, they paused simultaneously, and looked for a moment round the large, cool salon, about which the elder, or more serious of the assembly, were scattered for conversation or cards. Neither spoke, but after a moment's wait, Deerhurst turned his pale eyes in the direction of the open windows, and by the faintest lifting of his eyebrows, conveyed a question. Clodagh laughed, then silently bent her head, and a moment later they moved forward together across the polished floor. As they passed one of the many groups of statuary that brightened the more shadowed portion of the room, she caught a glimpse of her hostess, once again in conversation with Sir Walter Gore, and she was conscious in that fleeting moment of Gore's clear, reflective eyes resting on her in a quick regard. With a swift, almost defiant movement, she lifted her head and turned ostentatiously to Deerhurst. "'Is it to be philosophy tonight?' she asked in a low, soft voice. He paused and looked at her, his cold, pale eyes slow and searching in their regard. 
Not tonight, Circe,' he said, almost below his breath. Clodagh coloured, gave another quick, excited laugh, and, moving past him, stepped through one of the open windows. Gaining the balcony, she did not, as usual, drop into one of the deep lounge chairs, but, moving forward, stood by the iron railing and looked down upon the quiet canal. The night was exceptionally clear, even for Italy. Every star was reflected in the smooth, dark waters, while over the opposite palaces a crescent moon hung like a slender reaping-hook, extended from heaven to garner some mystic harvest. For a moment Deerhurst hesitated to disturb her, but at last, waving his scruples, he went softly forward and stood beside her. "'Are you offended?' he asked in a very low voice. "'No.' Her answer came almost absently. Her eyes were fixed upon the moon. "'Then, sad?' "'I don't know. Perhaps?' He drew a little nearer. "'And why, sad?' She gave a quick sigh, and turned from the glories of the night. "'I've only two days more in Venice. Isn't that reason for being sad?' "'But why leave Venice?' "'My husband is leaving.' He smiled faintly. "'And is he such a tyrant that you must go where he goes?' She laughed involuntarily. "'A tyrant?' she said. "'Oh, no, I can scarcely say that he is a tyrant.' "'Then why do you go with him?' She looked round for a moment. Then her eyes returned to the pageant of the sky. "'Why does one do anything?' she said suddenly in a changed voice. With a quiet movement, Deerhurst leant forward over the railing and looked into her face. "'Usually we do things because we must,' he said softly. "'But a compulsion is not always disagreeable. "'Sometimes we are compelled to action by our own desires.' Clodagh, conscious of his close regard, felt her breath come a little quicker. But she did not change her position. She did not cease to study the sky. She knew that his arm was all but touching hers. She was sensitive to the faint and costly perfume that emanated from his clothes.' but she felt these things vaguely, impersonally, as items in a drama unconnected with herself. When his next words came, it was curiosity rather than dread that stirred in her mind. "'It is my desires that are forcing me to speak now. The desire to see you again after you leave Venice. The desire to see more of you than a mere acquaintance sees, to be something more than a mere friend.' Clodagh still looked intently at the stars, but unconsciously her lips parted. "'Why?' she asked below her breath, and it seemed to her that the word was not spoken by her, but by someone else. With an eager gesture, Deerhurst extended his hand, and his long, pale fingers closed over her own. Then, out across the darkness and the silence of the balcony, floated the strong, decisive voice of Lady Frances Hope. "'Lord Deerhurst,' he called. "'Lord Deerhurst, so sorry, but Rose wants you to give an expert opinion upon one point in a game of bridge. It won't take two minutes.' The voice faded away again as its owner moved back into the room. At the sound of his name, Deerhurst had drawn himself erect. Now, bending forward silently and swiftly, he lifted the hand he was still holding and kissed it vehemently. The next moment he crossed the balcony and entered the salon. Left alone, Clodagh stood motionless. With a vivid physical consciousness, she could still feel the pressure of his cold lips upon her hand, but her mental sensations were benumbed. That something had occurred, she dimly realised, 
that some point, some climax, had been reached, she was vaguely aware. What its personal bearing upon her own life might be, she made no attempt to guess. With a dazed mind she gazed out across the Quark Canal, striving to marshal her ideas. For several seconds she stood in this state of mental confusion. Then, with disconcerting suddenness, a new incident obtruded itself upon her mind. With a violent start she became conscious that someone had passed through the open window and was coming towards her across the balcony. She turned sharply. But as she did so, her fingers slipped from the railing, and all thought of Deerhurst's kiss was banished from her mind. With a sense of acute surprise, she recognised the figure of Sir Walter Gore. Taking no notice of her dismayed silence, he came quietly forward. "'Good evening, Mrs. Milbank,' he said. "'Have you been enjoying yourself?' With a certain vague confusion, she met his gaze. "'Yes,' she answered. "'I, I suppose so.' There was a short silence, and Gore, moving to the balcony railing, rested his arm upon it. "'It is getting late,' he said. "'Time for us all to be thinking of our hotels.' Again she looked at him in faint bewilderment. "'Yes, I, I suppose so,' she said once more. Another pause succeeded her halting words. Then, with a gesture of decision, Gore stood upright, bringing his glance back to her face. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said suddenly, "'let me take you home. I have a gondola waiting at the steps.' The words were so totally unexpected that Clodagh remained mute, and, leaning forward, looked down into the heavy shadows cast by the ancient palace. There was a strange sensation of triumph in this unlooked-for moment, in this sudden capitulation of a man who had previously ignored her, a sensation before which all lesser things—Deerhurst's passion, Serico's ardour, Barnard's friendship— became meaningless and vague. But Gore, guessing nothing from her bent head, glanced behind him towards the salon. "'Well,' he said, "'may I be your escort?' Under cover of the dusk, Clodagh smiled. "'Mr. Barnard generally takes me home.' Involuntarily, Gore's figure stiffened. "'But,' she added in a low, quick whisper, "'I, I would very much rather go back with you.' Under many conditions the words would have seemed bold. But the manner in which she uttered them disarmed criticism. Gore's face relaxed. "'Then let us make our escape,' he said. "'Lady Frances is settling a bridge dispute, and quite a dozen people have slipped away in the last ten minutes. No one will question which of them has taken you home.' And Clodagh gave a short, light laugh of sudden pleasure. The small conspiracy made Gore so much more human, drew them so much closer together than they had been before. "'Yes, yes,' she said eagerly, "'And I'm lunching with Lady Frances tomorrow. I can explain then.' "'Yes, quite so. Now, if you are ready.' He moved to the window. Very quietly they re-entered the salon, and a flush crossed Clodagh's face as she saw Deerhurst bending over a card-table with the nearest approach to boredom and impatience that she had ever known him to evince. Her heart, already beating to the thought of her new conquest, gave an added leap at this silent evidence of her power. In the corridor outside the salon, Gore took her cloak from the servant, and himself wrapped it about her as they descended the stairs. Then, passing on to the flight of worn steps that led to the water, he singled to a waiting gondolier. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said as he offered her his hand, "'I'm going to make a strange request. I want to talk to you for half an hour before taking you home. Will you give me leave to make a tour of the canals?' 
he spoke very quietly, and in a tone difficult to construe. At his curious appeal, her heart gave another quick, excited throb, though instinctively she realised that neither dear hosts, Serico, nor Barnard would have proposed a midnight excursion in quite his voice or manner. But the very mode of the request enhanced its charm. She looked up into his face as she laid her hand in his. "'I give you leave,' she said gently. He met her glance, but almost immediately averted his eyes, and as he handed her to the seat, he turned swiftly to the gondolier, addressing him in Italian. The colloquy lasted but a few seconds, and at its conclusion the boat shot silently out into the canal. Uh, "'This man does not understand a word of English,' he said, as he dropped into his place by Clodagh's side. Again his words were peculiarly suggestive, and again his tone was curiously frank. Why should he suggest that their conversation was unintelligible, and suggest it in so impersonal a tone? She leant back in her cushioned seat, and let her eyelids droop. Her mind was full of puzzling and delightful thoughts. Never had she tasted the mystery of Venice as she tasted it to-night. Every passing breath of wind, every scent blown from the dark and silent gardens, every distant laugh or broken word, was alive with unguessed meanings. The feverish excitement of the past week seemed to fall away. This was romance, this drifting with an inscrutable companion through an unfathomable night. Her eyes closed. She lay almost motionless, filled with an aimless, vague delight. All creation, with all creation's limitless possibilities, lay in the warm of darkness that enveloped her. Then, with the instinct of senses newly and sharply astir, she became conscious that Gore was watching her. With a thrill of expectancy and anticipation, she opened her eyes. There is something very curious, something subtle and almost intimate, in the opening of one's eyes upon the steady scrutiny of another. As Clodagh raised her lids, her glance encountered Gore's. But on the instant that their eyes met, her joy in the moment her exultant triumph was suddenly killed. For the look that she surprised was not the look she had anticipated. It was interested, it was attentive, it was grave, but it held neither subjugation nor passion. As her brain woke to this realisation, she involuntarily raised herself in the cushioned seat. At the same moment her companion leant slightly forward. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said quickly, "'I've been watching you and thinking about you ever since I came to Venice, and at last I have decided that I must tell you what my thoughts have been. I am not very ill, perhaps I have no right to speak, but a man sees a good deal of life even if he wants to keep his eyes shut, and I have seen a great many people throw away their chances.' take the false and refuse the true. I have seen some men do it, and I have seen many women, many, many women. He paused, but did not look at her. It is a common, everyday occurrence, so common that one generally looks on it with indifference. But sometimes, just sometimes, one stops to think, one feels the great, great pity of it. He paused again, looking fixedly down at the strip of carpet beneath their feet. Clodagh glanced at him, a swift, searching, almost surreptitious look. There are times when one stops to think. He raised his head and looked at Clodagh, sitting erect and pale, her large eyes wide open, her hands clasped in her lap. There are times when it seems 
cruel when it seems a sacrilege to see a girl going down the easy road of lost illusions and callous sentiments. I know this sounds incomprehensible, sounds impertinent, but I cannot help myself. I must tell you what no one else will tell you. I must put out my hand. He paused, but Clodagh did not speak. You are very young, you are very high-spirited, you... you are very attractive, and the world is full of people ready, waiting, to take advantage of your youth, your high spirits, your attractiveness. You are not fit for this society, for this set that you have drifted into. This set? Isn't it your own set? At last Clodagh's lips parted. He made an impatient gesture. A man has many sets. Her pale face flushed suddenly. "'I don't think I understand,' she said. "'No, but I am trying to make you understand. "'I am not disparaging Lady Frances Hope, or her social standing. "'She is a charming woman, a clever woman, but she is a woman of today. "'Her pleasures, her ambitions, her friends.' "'Cloda lifted her head. "'Her friends?' she said frankly. "'Are not the friends for you, for any inexperienced girl. "'Take them one by one. "'There is Serico.' Indolent, worthless, vicious. Barnard, decent enough as a man's friend, and as honest as his clients permit him to be, but no proper guy for a girl like you. Deerhurst, but Clodagh checked him. Lord Deerhurst? What about Lord Deerhurst? Her voice was high and strained. Gore made a gesture of contempt. Deerhurst, he began hotly. Then suddenly his tone changed. Mrs. Milbank, he said earnestly. Whatever you may say, whatever you may do, I cannot believe that in your heart you are in sympathy with these people, whose one object in life is to gamble. To gamble with honour, money, emotion, anything, everything that has the savour of risk and the possibility of gain. You have no justification for belonging to these people. You have the good things of life, the things many women are forced to steal. Position, a home, a good husband— the last word Clodagh started violently, and with a quick impulsive movement Gore turned to her afresh. "'You are intoxicated with life, or what seems to you to be life. You are forgetting realities. I have seen your husband. He is an honest, simple, trustworthy man who loves you.' The tone of his voice came to Clodagh with great distinctness. It seemed the only living thing in the world that had suddenly become dead. While she had been sitting, rigid and erect, in the stern of the gondola, everything had altered to her mental vision. Everything had undergone a fundamental change. The purple twilight, the mysterious night sense, the breezes blown in from the lagoon, had become intangible, meaningless things. She was conscious of nothing but Gore's clear words, of her own soul stripped of its self-deception. At last, with a faint movement, she turned towards him. "'Take me home,' she said in a numbed voice. "'I wish to go home.' At the words he wheeled round in sudden protest, but as his eyes rested on her cold face a tinge of self-consciousness chilled his zeal. Self-consciousness and the suddenly remembered fact that his own action was, after all, unjustifiable. His own figure suddenly stiffened. "'As you wish, of course,' he said quietly. "'I suppose my conduct seems quite unpardonable.' For one fleeting second, an impulse, a desire, crossed Clodagh's face. 
but as it trembled on the brink of utterance, Gore leant forward in his seat and gave a quick, imperative order to the gondolier. A moment later they had glided up a narrow waterway and emerged again upon the Grand Canal. From the door and windows of Clodagh's hotel a stream of light was still pouring out upon the water. As they drew level with the terrace she turned her face away from this searching radiance and rose quickly to her feet. "'Good night,' she said in an almost inarticulate voice. "'Good night. Don't stir. Don't help me.' But Gore had risen also and in a sudden return of his earlier, more impulsive manner, he forgot the self-consciousness that had chilled him. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said quickly. But Clodagh evaded his eyes, and with a sharp, nervous movement shook her head. "'No,' she said. "'No, don't help me. I, I don't want help.' Stepping past him with an agile movement, she ran up the steps and across the terrace to the door of the hotel. Obeying a dominant impulse, Gore turned to follow her. But as his foot touched the side of the boat, he paused, drew slowly back, and dropped into his former seat. With almost breathless haste, Clodagh ran up the silent staircase of the hotel, and entering her own room, turned on the light. Then, walking straight to the dressing-table, she paused and stared into the mirror at her own reflection. The sight of that reflection was not reassuring. Her face looked colourless, as only olive-tinted skin can look. Her wide eyes, with their narrow pupils, seemed almost yellow in their intense clearness, while her whole air, her whole appearance, was frightened, tired, pained. As she looked, a nervous panic seized her, and she turned her gaze away. With freedom to look elsewhere, her eyes roved over the dressing-table, and suddenly fixed themselves upon a large, square envelope bearing her name, which stood propped against a scent-bottle. In nervous haste she picked it up and looked at it uncomprehendingly. It was unusually large and thick and addressed in an unfamiliar hand. With the same unstrung haste she turned it about between her fingers, halting with new apprehension, and she saw that its flap bore an elaborate black coronet and monogram. At last, with a strange sense of apprehension, she tore the envelope open. Circe, the letter began, I will not reproach you for deserting me. Life is too brief for reproaches, when one longs to fill it with pleasanter things. But be kind to me. Give me the opportunity of finishing that broken sentence. I shall smoke a cigar on the terrace at eleven to-night. If you are generous, wrap yourself up and keep me company for ten minutes. I shall wait, and hope. Dear Hurst, she read to the end, and stood for a space staring at the large, straggling writing. At last, as if suddenly imbued with the power of action, she tore the letter across, tearing and re-tearing it into little strips. Then, throwing the fragments on the ground, she turned and fled out of the room. Milbank's bedroom was on the same floor as her own, though separated from it by half the length of the corridor. Leaving her own apartment, she hurried towards it, and, pausing outside the door, knocked softly and insistently. A delay followed her imperative summons. Then Milbank's voice came faint and nervous, demanding the intruder's name. She answered, and a moment later the door was opened with a confused sound of shooting bolts. As the opened door disclosed him, silhouetted against the lighted room. He was garbed in a loose dressing-gown. His scanty hair was disarranged, and there was an expression of alarm on his puckered face. 
but for once Clodagh was blind to these things. With a swift movement she entered the room, and closing the door stood leaning against it. "'James,' she said breathlessly, "'you finished your business with Mr. Barnard today, didn't you?' Milbank, suddenly conscious of her white face, began to stammer. "'Clodagh, my, my dear, my, my dear!' But Clodagh waved his anxiety aside. "'Tell me,' she said, "'it's finished, isn't it?' "'Yes, yes, but my dear!' She threw out her hands in a sudden, vehement gesture. "'Then take me away!' she cried. "'Take me away! Let us go in the morning, by the very first train, before anyone is up!' Milbank paled. "'But my dear,' he said hopelessly, "'I thought I—I I believed!' Clodagh turned to him again. "'So did I,' she cried. "'So did I. I thought I loved it. I thought I loved it all. The music and the gaiety and, and all the people. But I don't. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it.' In a strangled sob her voice gave way, and with it her strength and her self-control. She took a few steps forward, then, like a mechanical figure in which the mechanism has suddenly been suspended, she stopped, swayed a little, and, dropping into the nearest chair, broke into a flood of tears, such tears as had shaken her four years ago when she drove out of Carrickmore on the day of her wedding. End of Part 3, Chapter 12